Hey, it's Sam from the Attack Release Show. Just wanted to say thank you to everybody that's been purchasing merchandise. Our store is getting low on inventory, which is amazing. We're so grateful for your support. If you are looking for gifts for the holiday or just want to treat yourself, knock that out right now. And please remember, once the merch is gone, it is gone for probably a while. So don't wait. Hit pause now. Go on to theattackandreleaseshow.com. Put a little order in and knock out your holiday shopping right now. Or just once again, treat yourself. So thanks to everybody who's purchased something and enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Attack and Release Show. My name is Sam Moses. I'm with my good friend, Matt Garber. And today, we're going to talk about digital versus analog. A follow-up episode. We did one of these episodes last year, and it was a semi-big hit. And so we thought this year, we would do another follow-up as things have changed over last year. Uh, Not only things about digital analog, but also the way Matt and I view digital and analog. Each year goes by, we get a little bit smarter and wiser, hopefully. And so we want to uh, share our thoughts with that. So Matt, would you like to unpack digital versus analog? I would like to unpack it. Excellent. So let's hop into this. Hopping. So we have discussed before, there are technically three ways to play this game. Yes. All digital, all staying in the box. Whenever we refer to the box, we mean the computer. Um, So... You import the mix into the computer, into your DAW, and then it never leaves there until you export it and send it back to your client. Everything is done through plugins, EQ, compression, harmonic enhancements, whatever you want to do. It is all done in the box. Uh, The second way is you have a hybrid setup to where you do a little bit in the box and then you hop on out of the box through a converter. And if you're new at this game, that's going to probably be a very difficult purchase to stomach (laughs) because you're going to be spending around $3,000 for something that just makes something uh, that goes ones and zeros into a little bit of a wave. Um, So you might want to get something with a little bit of tricks if you're starting out new. Uh, I personally recommend the Lynx Helo. It is great. It has a monitor controller, and it is fantastic and transparent. Mm -hmm. And you literally hear everything. A lot of more people are getting back on this train, too. They are. I think they came out with it in 2012. I might be wrong. But uh, when Sam and I bought it, I think the one thing that sold us is, it was a couple years ago, they like released a full firmware update on technology that was um, uh, not antiquated to them, apparently. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we really love it. So get a converter, hop on out of the box, get some gear. So, yeah, you do a little bit in the box, you hop out of the box with an expensive box, and then you play around (laughs) with some other boxes to twisty-twisty, turny-turnies, and uh, you hop on back in the box. And then you have, for number three, you have all analog, which uh, I guess if you never really receive a digital file, I guess you could receive tape, and then you could hop on into some gear, and then I guess back onto tape, but no. Nah. I mean, I mean, then you would 
essentially just you could either put it back onto tape or you could put it into a computer. So there's yeah. a couple that did that. I know uh, uh, one of my favorite records was done that way. Um, a band called Into It Over It. It's a indie punk band, and they did everything via tape. And it was just kind of cool, like watching them cut like guitar parts in and stuff like that. And yeah, so I think I think it's a cool art that. Uh, analog is cool because in a, to a degree it does limit you while allowing you to kind of do uh, make a sound uh, make sounds that were like were not there and that, that's kind of weird but like you play around with different harmonics and you um, yeah I don't know what I'm trying to say Sam you take over real quick well I can chime in on that like to me yeah analog creates Harmonics and I mean, some guys call it like bloom or JJP calls that was it the like word a, I was looking for like a rainbow or um, my favorite book, Secrets of the Mix Engineers book, calls it chasing the f- the flame or the fire, um, and it's all kind of related to the idea that whenever you use analog gear, the source is being manipulated by transformers, tubes, just wire in general, even if you just go out of the box from, you know, cables have a sound and they hit the gear. And even if you have the gear bypassed, it still has to usually go through something and that changes everything. And for me, I'm just going to go monologue for a minute here. Do um, it. I find that analog is one of the only things left in the industry that allows you to really have a sound. And digital has allowed everyone to kind of have accessibility to the same things. And within that, that has created a lot of people that sound identical. And back in the olden days, when I probably wasn't even born, or 20 years ago, Labels and artists would hire studios based on their sound because they only had certain types of gear. So maybe it was a Neve console or an SSL console or an EMI or Trident or Focusrite. Um, A lot of the iconic records that people say are the best records of all time were done and intentionally done in certain studios and certain rooms with certain gear to achieve a certain sound that the producer back then most likely had a vision, you know, from the start that, hey, this is going to be like a pop album, so we need to use maybe an SSL and this and go to this room and use this type of mic because that's the sound of pop and sound of the vision of the album. And to me now, what I've witnessed the last 10 years is digital has allowed everyone to have plugins and everybody kind of sounds the same. They all talk about the same things. And it's kind of like this sea of clones at this point to me. Um, and you even hmm. see it on all like the Instagram marketers. Like they're all saying the same thing like three, three tips to a kick drum sound, three tips to a quick mic. Uh, get my ebook. You know, I have the secret. Uh, the industry's broken. I have the answers. Your mix sucks, but I have the answers. It's all these people cloning each With other. With their 100 followers. Right. They're all cloning each other. And digital in general, one of the amazing things about it is it's basically like it's infinite. You can copy and paste <laughs> literally anything over and over again. 
And that gets into audio of like, for me, digital audio, there are so many good things about it that I love and I use plugins every day and I love them. But I really have felt like when I look over the last 10 years, the number one thing that sets me apart is having a specific sound. And people hire me for my sound. And part of that sound came from getting out of the box. And there's plenty of people who work in the box and make a living. Um, There are not many people who are sought after who make a living in the box who didn't get their career fame from working out of the box, which is a conversation no one wants to talk about. (laughs) Like These big-time guys who have moved in the box all their biggest albums and what kind of gave them their sound and iconic, you know, legend status came from working on analog gear. Um, And some of them claim like, oh, I never, you know, I can do the same thing in the box. But I know that's just not true. Like, can you complete the mix? Yes. Can you complete both things in the box, out of the box? Yes. You can turn in a project but does it sound the same? No. Like that to me is one of the biggest myths that has been floating around the internet for so long is in the box sounds the same as out of the box. Like summing doesn't make any difference compared to working in the box or an 1176 plugin sounds identical to an 1176 compressor. Like any test I've ever done, there is a clear difference between the two. And most of those tests, too, like part of my issue is they're always isolating a solo source, which we've talked about this before, but it's really one of my big things I believe in and that not many people talk about. I really haven't heard anyone talk about it until me. Was like when you start splitting hairs over 120 tracks in your session, now you've got like a whole head of hair that is different. And a lot of these shootouts and tests and people talking about analog versus digital you know, they say, oh, it's, you know, you're splitting hairs between the emulations, but when you're splitting hairs 120 times, that's a much bigger difference. And I'm just speaking from personal experience. Like, as soon as I went out of the box and got like a great mix bus to work into, it was inspiring. My sound quality went up, my length of time it took me to work went down, and clients liked me, liked my work better. And it, was, it just allowed me to have a unique selling point, which is like any great business has like a USP, like a unique selling point. And if everybody's using the same digital plugins in the industry, then you really have no unique selling point. And you could say, but Sam, I mix differently in the box than this guy. And it's like, maybe, but most of that stuff sounds the same. Like digital has a sound and that doesn't mean it's good or bad or you can't make a living off of it. But I find the analog gear has still had value. And the more I buy, the more it inspires me, even just selfishly. If my client doesn't even know, that's fine. But I find it to be more inspiring, which then allows me to do better work for my client. And that's, I think, a big thing that whether or not the client can tell the difference, you know, I can tell the difference. And that's why they hire me. (laughs) Like, that's, I think, part of this discussion between analog and digital is like, if you're going to shoot out something and you can't hear the difference, well, maybe you need to let someone who's worked on a thousand albums listen to it. And I almost promise you they'll be able to be like, yeah, there's a difference. Like, it's clear. 
But if you're like un- that comment alone is like you need a little choir behind you yelling <laughs> preach. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's part of this discussion is like if you want to debate digital versus analog, it's really hard to debate that if you never spent extensive time with analog. And that's how I was before I started moving out of the box, working out of the box more and more is I used to not think it was a big deal and that there wasn't that big of a difference. But once I started creating signal chains and different chains to get a pop sound or a hip hop sound or a rock or an indie, immediately I was like, oh my gosh, I have not been working with the tools I need to give the client the end product I'm hearing in my head and what they're talking about. And do you have yeah. do you have like a different mental faculty when you're dealing say if you have the exact same plugin yeah as you do gear do you treat that piece of hardware differently Absolutely. than you do the plugin 100% yeah I've noticed this with me as well yeah and so like just take uh I have the dangerous backs yeah I'm more likely to drive <clears throat> I'm more likely to drive one differently than the other. Oh, yeah. And just like depending on what I can hear. Like on the plug-in, I'm going to feel like I can't hear it until it's like a certain way. Yep. But when it's out of the box, I'm able to hear it like Instantly. at the half dB mark. Yep. I know in the that box, 100%. I might crank it to like a, I might do it to like a dB or dB and a half. Right. So that that's always been my question for oh, yeah. just about everyone. But even if you look at something like, uh, and I'm very surprised that they did this. The UAD pairing with Manly Labs. Mm-hmm. Because if you listen to one of them, it is like like massive passive hardware versus the software. It's not the same thing. No. Like even in their demos that they have on the website, it sounds differently. Right. It's like you listen to the very Mew that Manly has. Like via the UAD website and then via their heart or via via their software, it's like wow. Yep. Like how did this even get past quality control? Because there's nothing about this that sounds remotely similar. Yeah, that's all. That's all very interesting to me that companies do that and put their stamp on it. Um, Because I really believe, like with the massive passive plugin versus the real thing, I've watched before. I bought one. I watched so many videos. On guys A B and it was just such a difference between to me it's it's depth and width like the stereo image becomes massive <laughs> so bad yeah massive. like how something sits in like the spatial yeah. field and that gets back to our original thing you were saying about analog blooming or changing is like that's because analog is literally creating new information <laughs> off the source and digital plugins can do that if they emulate like we have new um, like Plugin Alliance has like the THD or VHD I can't remember someone can correct me um, with the SSL strip and the and, a, and the Neve uh, like channel strips and stuff that are supposed to emulate you know the console like each channel Waves has the NLS as well um, but those are still ones and zeros to me like there's there's yeah. a limit to the emulation and you're still dealing with ones and zeros and in the analog world things are constantly changing which is part of the reason why people don't like analog is they say it's you know 
it can be inconsistent, unpredictable, you know, maintenance, recall, blah, 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 for the sake of um, basically efficiency or convenience. And we've talked about it before a bit, but the longer I do this, the people that preach convenience and efficiency just don't make a lot of headroom or like headroom. Yeah. <laughs> they don't make a lot of headway. Yeah. And the only guys to me that do preach that, that can get away with it are like, we're just in an interesting time, like mix with the master videos. You have big time people talking about mixing everything in the box and not all of them do, but the people that mix in the box, you know, like I said, at one point had massive hits by not doing it in the box, which I do think is a big factor of the sound they were able to create. And then the other thing which we've talked about before is like even if you're working in the box, you recorded most of this in a million dollar studio out of the box. So at that stage, you've already basically gone out of the box. You just printed it all in. Now you're in the box and you don't have to do a lot because you already did the work, which is great. And you did the intentionality thing that I talked about earlier is you picked a studio, a console, gear, and everything to basically capture the vision that everyone has for the project. Then when you get to the mix stage in the box, you know it's not that difficult. The song is there. And if the song isn't there at the mix stage, then your producer and engineer have screwed up. <laughs> like They did not do their job, or the artist didn't perform. And that's, that's something like within this discussion of analog versus digital is... If you're chasing convenience and you're chasing efficiency, then you probably won't have a lot of longevity because both those things require like sprint mentality. And there's not like a marathon mentality within efficiency. I mean, I guess if you're trying to store energy and be efficient, but convenience is usually not part of long term vision. And that to me is what I see within the industry over the last 10 years and a lot of guys in town who are stuck in going in circles and they keep wondering, why can't I figure out how to do this right, make it sound the way I want? And they're willing to buy plug-in after plug-in or watch video after video. And a lot of the time, the answer, the aha moment, which is cool, and I'm like a big trying to get convertees back to analog with people in town, is like when I take somebody <coughs> into a studio to do a session and I let them see, this is what an SSL console can do when you track a band. They're like, well, the song's like already done. And I'm like, I know. That's the point. Like, <laughs> coming off the board, <laughs> it sounds correct. What are you doing if that's not your goal when you start a song, you know, to engineer? Or for mixing, like, it, it should sound like the song from the start of the song. And that's where, like, a lot of... You know, our quality control, you want to talk about quality and control is digital has allowed accessibility, but that doesn't mean there's quality with it. And we've mentioned that a bit before, but those are kind Once of my again, thoughts. The choir in the background. Yes. It's like <laughs> shouting. The analog versus digital, analog ad, adds things. It can also screw your whole thing up. Like when I first yes. got <laughs> gear, I remember like one of my first compressors I got. I was screwing up mixes at the mastering stage and I and I figured out how to fix it, but I didn't realize how compression out of the box to me drastically changes the swing of things, the pumping of things, the timing of things, because 
It just reacts differently. And once you find the sweet spot, though, within analog, your pieces of gear, to me, all have a sweet spot. Just like plugins kind of have a sweet spot that they're modeled after. But to me, when you find an analog piece of gear and find its sweet spot, it's unmatched. Like, there is nothing... To me, there is nothing better than, like, the 560 hertz on a massive passive boost shelf, which in the box which and on paper work. shouldn't work. Yeah, it should sound terrible. It should sound boxy. And with that for me, like when I boost it, it sounds magical. There's nothing, there's no other piece of gear, no plug-in, not even the mass pass plug-in. It doesn't sound that way. And for me, that's part of my marketing and it's part of my like one-up thing. Like I know I can't be replaced because people don't have my gear. Like they don't have my gear, they don't have my single chain, they don't have my ears. Even if you bought all my gear, you would still have different gear because it's different wirings, different tubes, different everything. And that to me is, you know, why I'm such a freaking analog freak about everything is I truly believe analog has helped me establish myself in the industry by allowing me to have the tools to create great sounding records. And I feel like if I would have just stuck in the box the whole time, I would have consistently been um, frustrated like I was for many years. I was making great sounding music. I was working with labels all in the box. But I still felt like for me when I would finally get my hands on some gear and when I started buying gear, it literally was like a weight came off my shoulders. And I was like, oh, no, I don't have to worry about if if it's going to sound good, it's a matter of how good will this sound. It really was a shift that drastically for me. Um, and there's a learning curve, obviously, in learning analog gain stage and all that. But I just believe analog really captures the sound of records better than digital. But I love digital too, so I could praise digital all day long. But that's my long monologue one <laughs> to jump off. I could praise digital all day long, but instead I'll hand it off to Matt. <laughs> but I don't want to. <clears throat> yeah, I. Uh, the one thing I wanted to touch on, yeah. uh, you said pretty early on, was that, um, and a lot of people chase after this, and uh, some people have a sound, and uh, specifically you'll get into that more when you go into the analog realm. The one thing that I will caution with that is don't be so attached to that sound and the, oh, look what I can do type sound that you think that you have. Mm, yeah. Um, because not everything might require your sound. Yeah, that's good. Um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a studio in town. The guy's a really, really good friend of mine. And he asked me, he's like, hey, man, what do you think the sound of my studio is? And I said, in all honesty, I think what makes you such a great producer and mix engineer is that you don't uh, impart your sound on somebody's record. And I think that's actually, mm, I think that's that's something more worth chasing after mm -hmm. is to just allow the music to do what it is supposed to do and what it wants to do as opposed to trying to fight to get your sound on that record. Yeah. And I think even if it's just transparency, I mean, that is a sound. Right. Um, 
And it's like, while the massive passive to me is great, and uh, when when I first got mine and I was talking to Sam about his, and he's like, yeah, do this and do this and do this. And I was like, holy crap, this just sounds like a record. <laughs> this just has the sound of records. Um I mean, that just kind of is what it is. But there's certain things and certain genres that I've found that the Massive Passive does not do Agreed. as well on just because it does have a tone and it does impart itself. And um, I mean, even even just running, uh, even just running a mix through it with no settings has a little bit of a tone. Mm-hmm. So you just uh, you just have to be careful with with some gear. Um, one of the first disclaimers that I want to put out there, and I had this on the very, very top of our list. <laughs> Your main focus, and by main I mean first, should always be your monitoring and your room. Yes. Everything else gear related is secondary. So none of this stuff, even this debate, this whole whatever, it's not even a debate. It doesn't even matter if your room is not adequately treated, if you're monitoring on a pair of subpar monitors. We're not going to get into brands or anything. You just, you probably already know that you need to do it. Um, if you're straining to hear what's going on in a mix and a master, whatever, um, then that more than likely needs to be a focus. Um, <clears throat> so, as far as analog goes, um, there are a couple people who do say there are cons in that. Um, there is a little bit of a fidelity loss if you do your conversion um, call it inadequately, if you do it on the cheap side. Salmon, excuse me, it just burped. <laughs> you know, just kind of like, just kind of cutting it up there. Um, yeah, Sam and I are very anti-cheap in that, <laughs> and not that like we just gonna, we're just going to spend our money on expensive things to spend our money on expensive things, but you typically when you spend your money correctly your there's going to be a bit of a quality increase in what you're getting so yeah i just be careful in what you do in terms of conversion don't cheap out on cables i mean even when you come to and, and this is this is where you get into the very gray area um that I am currently <laughs> immersed in. I'm kind of like hooked on this whole game of power cables and what sounds best. Mm-hmm. And there is, I, I promise you, there is a difference in quality in power cables. And like, there's like certain tests that I've done to like test the different sounds of like higher end hi fi power cables. And it's like at some point, there's, there, it's not worth chasing that dragon. Yeah. Um, but to a degree, I have seen uh, sonic increases in quality by playing around with power cables. And I'm playing around with like different converter cables and whatnot, like what goes from to and from my converter to my backbone that then it sends out. And so, and it's like running null test at the exact same level and everything and he obviously through a null test you invert the phase of one of the uh captured tracks and then you can hear the difference in essentially that cable versus your control so it's like you, you really do get into the weeds a little bit um but is there a little bit of a fidelity loss if you go cheap there will be 
Um, but nine times out of ten, if you're doing this right and you're playing playing this game right, you're doing your research right, you're not buying uh, junk gear, and you're making sure that it's taken care of, and if there is something wrong with it, you're sending it off as opposed to using an uncalibrated piece of gear, i.e., you don't unbypass a piece of gear and you can hear something dropping a level by about half a dB or like one of the channels kind of getting a little weird or the image shifting um, you need to send that off and you need to you need to take care of your gear and you need to like this is like the whole like maintenance program that goes along with that so there is like a little bit of a pain in the butt side to it but I think that if you were to lose anything through this chain that you would essentially be educated or educate yourself enough that you would build a strong enough chain to combat any fidelity loss that would happen. Yeah. Um, and as Sam said, I mean, one of the <laughs> the word that I was looking for at the beginning was bloom, and I was talking about your. You are creating new. Um, you are creating new information to a degree. It's like say you have a tube piece of gear. It's like you are physically shooting electrons in a tube from, I believe <laughs> it's from cathode to anode. Mm-hmm. And th- those are not always, and we're obviously talking on the molecular, molecular level, but like you're never going to shoot an electron in the exact same path to the exact same part of a tube. And so there will be little tiny idiosyncrasies that are different. Mm-hmm. Um, Hopefully, everything should be calibrated to within specific parameters to where it is relatively recallable. And I mean, if you're having one print that is sounding pretty darn different than the other, then once again, please send that piece of gear off. December is a great time of year. Um, a lot of people view it as a downtime. View it as a time to like late November around Thanksgiving. Send your gear off, right, and just. Not all of it, but just send off like one piece or something like that. Just so like you can ensure it's like, okay, we got this serviced and you log when you're taking taking care of stuff. So that's uh it's very important. So hopping in the box, I don't think that everything also I don't think that everything needs to come out of the box. I don't think that everything needs to be run through an analog piece of gear mm-hmm. just because of what is imparted. And while like you do have compressors and stuff like that that and EQs, et cetera, that are pretty quiet, sometimes the loss isn't really always worth the gain. Yeah. Or maybe something doesn't need touched up that much. And you need to play the less is more. Uh, strategy. And so that that is completely up to you as a mastering engineer and that you need to always do specifically what the mix calls for and never more. And if you do go out of the box, just because you have a piece of gear that cost you $3,000, $5,000, whatever it cost you, doesn't mean that that piece of gear always gets used. Mm-hmm. And that's a really hard thing to do because it's really easy to... Uh, look at a batch of plugins that you normally use, and you're like, ah, I don't think we need to do this because that was a hundred dollar plugin. Yeah, but I mean, when you're staring down the barrel of something that and you could possibly still be owing money for, you're like, well, hell yeah, I'm still going to use that. <laughs> so um, you just need to remember that it doesn't always 
Uh, it, your gear does not always need to be used. And so maybe if you do stay in the box by just using uh, a fab filter EQ or um, a plug and alliance limiter or whatever you're playing around with, maybe that's all it needs. So that's a. Uh, yeah, that I, th- I think that's kind of where I want to where I want to stay on that. Yeah. So, what do you have to say about in the box, Sam? Well, do you hang out in the box more, or I you're mean, like more like, nope, I'm going out. I mean, I started so like my first like five years was pretty much all in the box. Mm-hmm. So I built a lot of clientele and did a lot of records. Being fully in the box, not having the best converter, um, not having the best monitors, I was from the very beginning um, aware of what a good room could do. And I think that is something I didn't realize (coughs) I did well on accident um, early on, is I spent a lot of time tweaking my room with panels, and I had... um, not egg cartons, but it was basically like um, my buddy worked at Apple back in Chicago. This was 10 years ago. And like all the computers would come on basically like little one inch foam, looks like egg carton. Hmm. So I had a crap ton of that to play with. Um, hmm. So I would make different thicknesses out of them by stacking them together and then just nailing them into a wall back in my apartment days. Um, but I mean, I I think at this stage for me in the box is I know I can do my job in the box if I was forced to. Like I can master and mix fully in the box and make a great sounding record. I would never be scared if someone was like, "You can't use any analog on this project. You have to work in the box." I would never be like, "Oh, I'm." you've tied my hands behind my back. I don't know what to do. Because mm-hmm. there is a part of this equation that is you, and you are a analog machine as a human. And the way you hear and interpret things, even if you're working in the box, and this is kind of an argument pushback to what I was talking about earlier, which is fine, because there's always, life is just a big paradox. <laughs> it's just all contextually based. So... um but how you hear things will drastically impact what you do. So you could work fully in the box and still have a sound. But it just seems to me that, you know, my first move is always listen, which is like your move. So like anytime I get something, if I'm mastering it, it's listen, what does it need? And a lot of my clients now have done the thing where they've worked out of the box the whole time. Like it came off an SSL console through 30 pieces of gear and it has all the coloring it needs. It even has like a pretty hot level because they, you know, pushed into a console or tape or something. And at that stage, going out of the box is sometimes detrimental because it does shift things and you can lose the vibe of the mix really quickly. When everything's really nice and compacted and balanced, to me, when I start if tweaking things, it's so noticeable as co- compared to like getting a, I'll say, an amateur. Like mix that is kind of balanced, but has some issues, and there's some you know whatever things about it that doesn't sound pro. I can get away with manipulating things more so to make it sound great. 
But if I get a really great mix, as soon as I tweak one thing, just a, a small adjustment, it can really throw the whole vibe off because everything is sitting so perfectly already that you know when you poke one thing out, it stands out like a sore thumb. When you get like a so-so mix and things are kind of sticking out all over the place and there's gaps and holes, then you can kind of mess with things a lot more to me and get away with it. And it's not a get away with it like I'm trying to do something, I'm trying to make it sound great. But for me, the in the box, out of the box is kind of always first like, listen, and what does the song need and how do I, how can I serve the client? Sometimes client says, have fun with it, like use whatever you want on it and like I want color and I want it to you know sound like this. And even then still it's using the discernment and the wisdom of saying, okay, the client's saying this, and sometimes I will hear the mix and go, well, the mix is already super colored. Like, And when that's the case, when I think, oh, you're asking for color, I listen to it, it sounds super colored or lo-fied or whatever, then that's when you have another conversation with the client. Say, you know, help me understand what you mean by color. And then they usually say something like, oh, we're going for this record or this sound or more low-end or rounder or whatever then you can start making good decisions after that, after you get a response. Um, but, I mean, for me, in the box is, um, I don't know, it's it's a great thing. I mean, I work in the box because I'm a hybrid setup every day. So, like, DAWs are mm-hmm. terrific. I think every DAW at this point, I want to say sounds the same. I do think Ableton sounds differently, Um Strictly because I swear on my life there's some sort of compressor going on the whole time. Um, that's my conspiracy with Ableton is that they have some <laughs> glue compressor when you're working in it um, happening. I cannot <clears throat> confirm or deny this. It's just my theory. It just sounds like there's something going on that when you export out of Ableton, it doesn't sound the same to me. If you were like to stem it out or multi-track stuff out, it feels like things change. Um, but outside of that, Logic to Pro Tools to Studio One to whatever, all to me sounds identical at this stage. So as far as like a DAW, you know, digital, I find that it's all basically identical. And um, I don't know. It's a. This is almost like a hard thing for me to say because I've been analog for so long now that I can't. Um, I can't imagine me saying like I prefer digital over analog. But there's mm-hmm. plenty of people I know who work digital and do great work. Like I'll hear things they make and I go, "That sounds terrific." Um, so I have no issues with people working in the box, and I don't think it's necessarily bad if you're fully in the box but I do think it's when you do work fully in the box you have the chance to sound like everyone else to me and what's kind of been interesting to me is like the observation of plugins the last couple of years is every plugin is trying to recreate analog <laughs> like they've been doing yeah. that for years but specifically the last couple of years like with all the NLS stuff and Plug Alliance doing stuff, and there's a huge amount of saturators now that are out or color boxes. It's like a trendy thing. And everyone's trying to recreate analog, but they don't want to say that's what they're doing. 
Like it's everybody trying to be like, get the analog sound. We're trying to recreate the analog sound. And the solution is this plugin that emulates analog sound. And it's like, well, the solution is just work in the analog domain. Like mm-hmm. what you're chasing does exist. And not only does it exist, you can go buy it today. Like I think that's part of the silliness within our industry is we act like there's a limited amount of gear. And to me, there's like a oversaturation of analog gear because of plugins have become popular. But I think it's funny that all these plugin companies are chasing the analog sound, but trying to fight for plugins. Like it's kind of this, once again, it's a weird paradox of they're trying to trade. You know, they want efficiency and they want to be able to make the most money because once you make software, you can copy it and copy and paste it a million times. There's no overhead cost, really, like there is when you're building out gear. But I just think it's silly when you, if you stop and think about what you're trying to accomplish, which is I'm trying to get an analog sound or I'm trying to use this saturator to create harmonics. You could buy one nice, like the Overstayer, which is an incredible box, two-channel thing that I have. Does it cost money? Yes. But to me, almost every plugin I have that's a saturator, color, whatever, can be replaced instantly by the Overstayer if I want color and saturation. And the Overstayer sounds better, and it's more, I can manipulate it more than a plugin. Which is a weird thing of like plugins to me, digital in the box should have infinite possibilities, but it really doesn't because, like we talked about earlier, to me, pushing plugins, they basically have a couple spots they sound really good and then they crap out to me. Like they get thin, they get brittle, they get distorted, they fake clip. And with analog, like almost every setting within an analog piece of gear has its own thing going on. And then to have like, blend knobs, and just the ability to change gain staging in analog is totally different than gain stage in digital. That's where one thing I think digital plugins have done a bad job doing is the signal coming in and the signal going out within plugins, it doesn't change that much. But in the analog world, the signal coming in and out drastically changes the sound of the piece of gear. And that's something I feel like digital has always missed is if I hit the overstayer at 10 dB compared to 20 dB, the whole box has changed at every setting. And so I've just created a whole new box based on a 20 dB input or something if I'm sending a signal. Compared to like a plug-in to me, you know, when I change the gain stage within a plug-in, I feel like there's not much that happens and changes. Like the bloom or the harmonic content doesn't change that much. Some people might argue that with me, which is fine. But I don't know. I just, I, my view of in the box is like it's super useful and sometimes things can stay in the box and you can accomplish the goal you want. But I found most people who start working with analog gear, once you get over the initial learning curve, they have a really hard time going back um, to digital. And the people that do want to go back to all just digital in the box, to me, the argument is always based on, you know, we don't have time to do this. We don't have time to make recalls like we used to. We don't have, you know, this and that. And that is a compromise of the engineer over years. Instead of setting boundaries, 
and telling the industry or the A&Rs or whoever, hey, you know, we can't, we need more time. Instead, they said, sure, we'll compromise this and that. Like that, this is a, you know, what I'm talking about right now is a much bigger conversation about where our industry has headed, you know, and it trickles down into now songs are two minutes and 20 seconds and you got to put out singles and content and be a, you know, you just have to get faster and faster and crank out more and more and more. And that's where the industry has, has come. And I don't think it's a healthy place to be at. Um, and it's not sustainable, which we're seeing based on stream payouts and artists getting treated badly um, or poorly. But I don't know. I just find that analog is a great tool. Digital is a great tool. And to say you have to have one or the other, I think, isn't something you have to do. We have the freedom to do whatever Mm -hmm. we want, which is great. Um, But I think if people would take the time and invest into some pieces of gear... Um, they would find they enjoy working more. They would get a better sound. And like we talked about before, you got to have a decent room and a decent set of monitors to at least, even if you buy cheap monitors, at least buy monitors and a sub or something so you, there is a possibility for you to at least hear all the frequencies or feel them <laughs> on some level. Like I can't. I can't believe how long I worked without having like basically 40 hertz and below when I started. And I didn't think it was a big deal. I just thought, hmm. oh, I'll just use these Yamahas and a lot of people use them. <laughs> and I'll just ignore the low end, which is like, how do you just decide to ignore the low end? It's like when people only work on NS10s, I'm like, yeah, it sounds like NS10s because you've totally botched your low end. Like at the mastering stage, I can tell like NS10 mixes because they have the same issues. And to me, people that praise the NS10, it's like, I don't know, your mixes don't sound that great. Like there's some that sound terrific, but there's a lot of other mixes. If we're talking about Sonics, like there's a lot of other better balanced mixes that weren't done on NS10s. But of course we know Sonics aren't always the most important it's the vibe and the emotion usually that makes something we think sonically sound good which is a whole other conversation um but yeah i guess i would wrap like this little monologue is i want to encourage people to use whatever you want like whatever helps you do your work and serve the client the best and makes you happy as well do that but if you're constantly like slamming your head into your laptop or something, just going like, why can't I get this to sound the way I want to? Not even a comparison. It's got to be a personal thing more than a comparison. It's got to be a personal like quest of what am I trying to do here to serve the client? They've paid me to hopefully inject my opinion basically on how to interpret this art with them and what am I missing? What paintbrush am I missing? What piece, what color am I missing that isn't allowing me to do that to the full extent of what I feel like I should be able to do? And that for me was a big shift of, I stopped comparing and I just started thinking to myself and I even, I mean, I write this stuff down as like, what is Sam's sound? Like, what do, what do I like? You know, the records I like, why do I like them? Who made them? What did they use? And then how does that fit into what I want to create with people? And I think that's, 
you know, I like to think, you know, it is about serving the client, but it's also kind of become this polarizing talking point of that if you hire a mix engineer or master engineer or producer, they should just bend over and take whatever the person is telling them to do as, you know, you're just a service provider. And I think at some point in the music industry, from what I've read and talked to older people, there was a time when people got hired and not just hired, they were trusted that they would do their job correctly. And so you wouldn't have a random person telling a mastering engineer how to master. You would just say, hey, it's time for mastering. Let's hire the mastering guy who has the mastering experience with the mastering gear. And whatever he does, we will trust that that's correct. And I think that's something that digital has disrupted trust because it's given accessibility to so many people to think they know what they're doing. Like you can buy a mastering bundle on almost any plugin con you know, plugin website at this stage. And you can very much think I am now a mastering engineer. No, you're not. Like you're not a mastering engineer probably because you haven't mastered thousands of albums. You haven't studied it. You don't even understand should you even use those plugins when it comes time for mastering or not. That's part of mastering. And I'm a big believer in trusting people to do what they're great at. And I think that's when you get not even, I don't even really care about the best end product anymore. It's the best experience with the team, like with the group of people. And that, as I do this longer and like I'll say mature, I feel like the reason people hire me and some of my favorite projects are normally the ones that were more so about the experience, the relationship, the story, the things we did to the album, the things we experimented with, the things we chose to do and not to do all together and trusting each other that, hey, I see you as a human. You know more about this than I do. So I'm going to default to you to do your thing and I'm going to accept it and thank you for doing that. And I think that's a bit of a rarity these days. Um, this is kind of like a side rant, I feel like, of trust. But I see it all the time where people will get upset or say like, oh, the band, you know, I got, I got a mix from a, a famous mix engineer and I didn't like it and the band doesn't like it and I like my mix better. And I've even been in this position where I've been like, yeah, I think my mix is better than famous mix engineer. But, it, but that statement in itself is me saying, I don't trust this guy who has mixed 10x more records than me with 10x more credits that he knows what he's doing over me. Like that's just, to me, kind of a ego attitude that has plagued this industry. And I think it fuels the digital versus analog discussion when you have people who are willing to die on the digital is the same as analog or people on the other side that analog is better than digital. It's just all irrelevant and everything should come down to context and what you like using, what inspires you, what helps you create your unique product and helps you helps it be an extension of you to serve the client. So that is my monologue number two and I'm done. I'm out. Yeah, you're very done. <laughs> That's all I have to say. <clears throat> that was really good. That was good. I don't really think I have anything else to add. Nothing? I mean, I have like little ancillary thoughts yeah. that like you brought up Spotify and how it screws artists, but I mean, I, I've, I've been talking with a lot of local artists about it and 
one of the best articles I read uh, was this guy who said, you know, Spotify is a lot like a NASCAR. And in order to get to NASCAR, first you got to race on a lot of dirt tracks. <laughs> and Spotify is just the dirt track you got to race on. And I was like, and he's like, and sometimes you never get past the dirt track. <laughs> and that's, I, that was a really genius way to explain it. So, I don't know. And sometimes you might see someone famous just racing on a dirt track. Yep. <laughs> that's so, that's, that's the best way that I've heard it I explained. I love it. That's great. That's the best way I've heard it explained to me. Yes. So, I don't know. My 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 biggest takeaway and and whatnot is always do what the mix calls for. Yeah. Never more. And whether you're in the box, whether you're analog... Um, never do more than what the mix calls for. If you're in the box, I, I would I'd push you just to go and uh, go and experiment. Hopefully, you have a friend who's out of the box and you can uh, twist some knobs. And I think, as I said before, do a little twisty twist, a little turny turny, and uh, you know, jump from one box to another and see what it sounds like. Um, yes. So just so you can kind of see what else is there and then make an educated decision about where you'd like to stay. The people who do stay in the box and they have been doing this as a career for 20 years and they just really never cared for going out of the box, I mean, mad kudos to you for making it work, for having those relationships and um, that you don't need uh, to do the experimenting and that you're super comfortable where you are. I mean... Mad kudos to you. Keep doing you, and don't ever change what you're doing. Um, I'm quite the analog fan, so I think I'll hang out of the box a little bit. I'm actually, uh, I, I actually didn't get or start going out of the box until I met Sam, and he's like, "Dude, you should try this." <laughs> and then, you know, like one piece of gear is kind of like a gateway drug, and then you get into this. Oh, you know, full-on heroin addiction of <laughs> <laughs> of just gain staging and figuring out how to repatch stuff. And, oh, what if I put this here? What if I put this here? What's this going to sound like? I'll get a switcher, and then I can push this button. And then now, this is before this. Yeah. I can turn this knob, and then that's a... Yeah, it's just It's just fun. And it's more tactile. And I feel like, personally, because music is an emotional thing, I feel like it deserves somewhat of an emotional response at the mastering stage. Yeah. I just think personally that that can be better done uh, through tactile movement. And I do get into a mix master situation more when I am turning knobs and I am like bypassing things and I am like checking out the gain staging and just seeing what's going on. Yeah. So that's me personally. I have an addiction I think the first step is admit admitting that. <laughs> so this is me coming to y'all. <laughs> anyway, my but I, I'm kind of getting into a new addiction. I'm like building this like little workshop with my buddy, and we're gonna start building our own gear and just messing around. And I know nothing about electronics. I know enough to be dangerous, um, <laughs> but I'm really interested to start building and. More importantly, making mistakes and figuring out that, nope, that will make that blow up. Yeah. That's the best part. So you should do the same and you should experiment. And um, I'm trying to make a pun of 
step out of your box <laughs> or think outside of the box. I don't know. We'll get there one day. <laughs> Anywho, um, yeah, so I imagine Sam has the music queued already. Queued up. It's probably fading in nicely. I'm sure. I guarantee you it's fading in nicely. <laughs> if you like the music, more than likely it's available at beesabeats.com. Thank you. Buy Sam's Beats. Um, yeah, if you like what we're doing, go to uh, iTunes, give us some stars. Uh, a review would be lovely. And yeah, thank you for being you. Thank you for tuning in. And whatever you are having, have a darn good one. Yes, sir. Sam? Yes. Cue up that music. Cue it. See y'all. Thank you so much. Bye.